CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Your Ben Jarofsky show for Thursday, January 6th is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky, Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can, ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. It is Thursday, January 6th, and pre-recorded from my apartment in his attic, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, it's Whitney Young Day. (laughs) 35th Ward Alderman, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, and In These Times writer, Miles Camflassen. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Actually, we should uh, call it Lefty's Day, because uh, it's always Lefty's Day on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. I'm actually calling this Backlash Thursday, and here's why. Uh, because all morning and into the early afternoon, I've been seeing response, angry response on Twitter, uh, in articles and essays against Chicago Teachers Union from, of all people, liberals. Liberals. I guess I shouldn't be surprised by this because I lived through this in 2012. As I was telling Carlos, my next guest who's right on deck, I remember this uh, when all the vilification of Karen Lewis back in 2012. Now they treat her like they love her. Like, oh, my God, I love Karen Lewis. And I just, every time the Chicago Teachers Union takes a stand, uh, this really goes back to to 2010. Every time in the last 11 years, the Chicago Teachers Union takes a stand. Man, the backlash. It's like liberals think they can score points with, I don't know, who they're trying to score points with. Independents, middle-of-the-roaders, right-wingers, Darren Bailey, you know, Donald Trump, by bashing whoever is leading the Chicago Teachers Union. And uh, I saw a, a couple of tweets from Carlos Ramirez Rosa uh, 35th Ward Alderman, one of the few people I saw, one of the few public officials I saw who actually stood with the teachers. I immediately reached out. Carlos, got to come on the show and talk about this because it's good to know I'm not the only person out there who doesn't have this knee-jerk reaction against the teachers union. So, Carlos, first of all, welcome to the show, and thank you for uh, coming in on such quick notice. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, Carlos. Um, wow. Let's, let's begin by um, stating the obvious uh, and then I'm talking, of course, about the fact that the, the teachers effectively uh, uh, closed down the system the other day when they said they, wa- they voted to approve a resolution calling for uh, uh, virtual education, uh, classrooms only, uh, no in-class classrooms until uh, remote, CT- remote learning. Remote, remote learning is the correct uh, language. Thank you. Uh, you must be getting response from uh, upset uh, parents in your ward. Uh, you know, you know what? Today I got one email 
um, that said, hey, can we, you know, get teachers back into the classroom? Prior to this, I've actually been hearing from working class moms, Latina moms, uh, in Hermosa, the 60639 zip code. For those not familiar with Chicago, 60639 is the northwest side of the city of Chicago, heavily Latino neighborhoods like Hermosa, Belmont, Cragen, um, extremely working class. I mean, census tracks with a medium income of $35,000 per year, uh, $32,000 per year. Uh, the hardest hit uh, in uh, the state of Illinois, in some instances in the country, um, a lot of people have died in 60639. Um, as a result of this pandemic, a lot of people have lost housing, lost jobs. Uh, this pandemic has really devastated my community, Hermosa. And uh, those moms for months now have been telling me it is ludicrous that we are going back to in-person learning. Um, the local school council president, so this is a mom that was elected from amongst the other uh, parents at Nixon Elementary in Hermosa. She has been calling me and urging me to go to CPS and demand remote learning. Uh, the position that these mothers have staked out is as long as this pandemic is going on, we should not be having in-person instruction. We should have remote learning. Uh, now, obviously, we know that for a very long time, there have been anti-vaxxers, there have been pandemic denialists who from the very get-go said, no, do not close schools. You know, this is just a flu, it'll go away. Um, and then I think increasingly we've seen uh, liberals, and I'll, I'll have to say the truth here, primarily white, primarily affluent liberals who have been saying, well, I, want, I just wanna get back with my life now, right? And, you know, things, things are, are safe, things are good, people are vaccinated. Um, you know, I, I think it's really important for people to reflect on how segregated our society is and how people have had a different experience during this pandemic. Some workers have been able to shelter in place. Some workers have been able to work from home. Some workers have had enough disposable income to get food delivered to their house, to get groceries delivered to their house. Um, a lot of other people have not had that option available to them. And I want folks to think, how many folks do you know that have died from COVID? Because I can tell you that in the Latino community, particularly in the working class community, which makes up the bulk of CPS, every single person that I know knows at least more than five people that have died from COVID in their extended network, either friends or family. I myself know of at least nine people. I know one friend, both of his parents died. Another friend, both of his uncles died. They both got COVID in the workplace. So for some people, this pandemic has not been as bad as for others. And I think that the folks that have seen the most death in their community, they're the ones that are reaching out to my office right now that are very afraid about the conditions within their public school. And so for workers, uh, for CPS teachers to stand up and demand safe working conditions, to demand the same types of protections and mitigations that have been successfully put in place in large school districts like the LA Unified School District, what they are doing is extremely reasonable. What they are doing is the correct thing for our children and our families. And it is shameful that Mayor Lightfoot and her handpicked CPS leadership had failed to do the bare minimum to ensure that schools can stay open. If you're angry that schools are closed right now, one, it's because Mayor Lightfoot and her CPS leadership have failed to do the bare minimum and work with the union to put the right safety guidelines in place to ensure that we can continue to have a safe learning environment for our children. It's really just that simple. All right. What are some of those uh, safe guidelines that could be put could have been put in place uh, in time for schools to safely open 
by what was Monday, whatever. I'm losing track of time. Uh, January 3rd. January 3rd. Yeah. Well, you know, number one, the L.A. Unified School District always planned to go back to school on January 10th, January 11th. That was always the plan. What the teachers union fought for in L.A. and what the school district worked with the teachers union to implement. In other words, the teachers and the parents got their demands met in L.A. We could do the same exact thing here in Chicago. People was one mandatory testing for everyone prior to coming back. And what the city of L.A. and the school district have done is they have set up, I think, 65 plus uh, mass testing sites. Right. That's something that CPS and the Chicago Department of Public Health could have done here. Right now, the city of Chicago has no real testing sites that are available. People are going to these Spirit Halloween testing sites. You know, Spirit Halloween, that store that just miraculously opens up in in all the shuttered storefronts, you know, all our storefronts shuttered by Amazon. Um, So people are going to these Spirit Halloween testing sites in Chicago because no one can find a real testing site, a bona fide testing site. So, uh, you know, the L.A. Unified School District has worked to set up 65 public testing sites. Right. You know, these places are legitimate. They have the capacity and the wherewithal to quickly process and safely process these tests to get people in and out and to get them their results. So, number one, mandatory PCR testing before people come back. Number two, testing throughout the school year. Right. We know that a lot of kids will get this disease and they will be asymptomatic in my own family. Unfortunately, we had a toddler who was not asymptomatic. He had the sniffles. Eventually, his uh, he was three years old. Eventually, his symptoms got worse. Every single family member that he saw who was vaccinated, he gave them COVID. Wow. Luckily, they were asymptomatic or had very mild symptoms. But that's how this disease works, right? That's how it's able to spread. And yeah, in small numbers, it's containable. The problem arises when you have this uncontrolled spread like we're seeing right now with Omicron and we're seeing with this current surge. That is when we begin to see the issues in our hospitals where they're turning people away. My aunt, my poor aunt, my family member had to wait two months to get a test, a necessary test to ensure that she did not have cancer. And that's a result of the strain that exists right now on our healthcare system. So you want to reopen schools right now without making sure that we're trying to control the spread of COVID-19. That means it's going to impact everybody. We're going to see more kids hospitalized. We're going to see more teachers hospitalized. We're going to see the system, the schools overwhelmed. So it's not that people want remote learning. Everyone understands in-person learning is ideal. In-person learning is necessary, but it's that the workers And the parents that I've heard from overwhelmingly are demanding that the conditions in the schools be safe for everyone in that classroom. And honestly, the way that CPS and the mayor have approached this, it's as if like what pandemic, you know, go into your poorly ventilated, overcrowded classroom. The kid can have a mask or no mask at all. The kid can be vaccinated or unvaccinated. We don't have any tests to give to anyone, even if they are showing symptoms and just go about your life, go about your business. Right. And I got to tell you something. I think it's because Lori Lightfoot, she's not serving the parents and the voters and the people of the city of Chicago. She is serving the capitalist class. She's serving the donor class, the rich people, the, the billionaire class who are calling her and telling her, keep those workers in the classroom because the machine, because our profit, uh, you know, margins cannot drop. Right. The churn cannot stop. Um, and, and, and we've heard, you know, it's, it's been reported in many places that a lot of bosses are complaining about how remote learning disrupts. They're not worried about the children. It's not, they're not worried about how it disrupts children. They're worried about how it disrupts their profit and their business and their ability to demand that workers get back in 
to uh, the workplace. So, you know, I, I think that this this bullying that we're seeing from Lori right now, one of it, part of it just comes from that's her personality. She can't help herself. But I think part of it, too, is she's posturing right now. We saw during the teacher strike, right, the types of text messages that Lori Lightfoot was getting, right, the types of exchanges she was getting from, you know, the representatives of the elites in our city saying, yeah, you stick it to those teachers. You show them, Lori. Break that union, right? We can assume safely that that's the same exact type of rhetoric and uh, motivations and thought processes that are going on right now between Lori Lightfoot and the people that have either cut her big checks or she's hoping will cut her big checks, right? They're, they want to bust this union, right? They do not like the idea that in this country, workers would rise up and demand safe working conditions. Because if CTU can show that workers can come together in a union and win safe working conditions for themselves and their families, then it can open up the floodgates where workers all across this nation will want to do the same exact thing for themselves. All right. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the role of the Chicago Health Department. And uh, I'm going to allow somebody else to vent on this, uh, Carlos, because uh, I vented on it enough yesterday. But I I find it um, very upsetting to see the health commissioner uh, utilize in the role that she's been utilized over the almost throughout this whole pandemic. And whatever message the mayor at that moment wants to get out, be it let's have a huge Lollapalooza festival, let's open up the schools or keep the schools open, regardless of whether uh, we've met all the requirements and needs to make themselves, the health commissioner stands there and justifies it. And she said something the other day at a press conference, like she said uh, that this variant is uh, not much worse than the flu. And when I heard the health commissioner saying that, I'm like, are you are, are you the health commissioner for the state of Florida? I mean, th- <laughs> that that's like a right wing talking point that I've been hearing. I listen to like uh, Joe Rogan's show. You know, I actually listen to what the, what the other side says. And I'm yeah. like, this is coming right. This is what Joe's been saying for over two years. And the talking points of health commissioner officials is no, this is you cannot treat this like the flu. So, Carlos, please address the issue of the health department and the health commissioner uh, in, at this, in this current crisis. You know, Dr. Arwadi uh, came into the Chicago Department of Public Health under Mayor Rahm Emanuel. And Mayor Rahm Emanuel was a neoliberal through and through, right? Uh, we have our classic New Deal Democrats who believe in a robust government, who support unions, who believe that government has a role to play in creating a social safety net that lifts all boats. Uh, and then we have our neoliberals, right, uh, courtesy of uh, Friedman at the University of Chicago um, and, you know, Ronald Reagan, um, who believe that the goal of government is to privatize Right. That less government is good, Uh, that, you know, government does not have a role to play in protecting uh, the people that it serves. Right. That instead, uh, it can be the private sector that can assume this role and that it's actually virtuous and good for the private sector to assume this role. Right. And so that is the neoliberalism that Chicago has been experiencing. Of course, we saw daily privatizing our parking meters, a complete and utter disaster. So Rob comes in as mayor. What does he do? He immediately says the Chicago Department of Public Health. We are cutting half of our city's mental health clinics. First budget. Every single person voted for it, even the progressives that were on the uh, the city council at that time. 300 union workers, health professionals lost their job overnight. 
Um, and, and our city has been suffering as a result. What happened? The jails started to fill up with people who were having mental health crisis. People that relied on their local mental health clinic in their neighborhood died. They died because they did not have a place to access those services. But apparently Dr. Arwadi has defended this every single step of the way, right? She has said that that was the right decision to do, to close the city's mental health clinics. And so there's a belief amongst the leadership at the top of the Chicago Department of Public Health that the city of Chicago should not be in direct service. And so when this pandemic started to hit our communities, and again, it started to hit my community, Hermosa, in a very ugly way, very early on, right? Because while other workers got to, to stay at home and every worker should have been able to stay at home. Let me tell you that every single worker should have been able to stay at home, but we need to stop and assess that some of us have had more privilege than others. I've been in a very privileged position during this pandemic. I've been in an extremely privileged position during this pandemic, right? And I want people that as they think through these issues, think about the privilege that you have had, right? Not to make you feel bad, not to knock you down, but just to have a realistic assessment, right? Of what other people walk in someone else's shoes, right? So 60639, while lots of other professional white collar workers got to sit at home and be safe, right? Which I'm glad that they were able to. People in the 60639 zip code in my community were going into work with very little protections, right? Where their boss was telling them, don't wear a mask, where their boss was telling them, you cannot socially distance, right? Um, and people were dying in my community in record numbers, okay? When we reached out to Chicago Department of Public Health and said, what's going to be done about this? What is the response that our Chicago Department of Public Health can provide? You know what we were told? People can go to their primary care physician. Then, <laughs> uh, I don't know if you have a primary care physician. You probably do. Um, I, I have one. But the vast majority of working poor people who are underinsured, who are uninsured, they don't have a primary care physician, right? And so that same way of thinking of it's going to be the private sector that takes care of our people, <laughs> right? That has infected the Chicago Department of Public Health throughout this entire pandemic to the, to the point where as the city was in the middle of a holiday surge, the advice that the city of Chicago was giving to residents to go get tested, right? Because they closed down the city-run testing sites. Great idea, right? We had to push them to get those city testing sites open, right? Finally, we got those city testing sites open, but uh, they ended up closing them, right? So then what does the city tell people? Go to your primary care physician. Wait a second. So days before Christmas, you want me to call up my primary care physician, assuming I even have one, and say, can I get a COVID test? They would say, uh, I can I can see you in February. Yes, that's exactly what they'll tell And I can tell you that from experience. February, I think it's more like March, but anyway, go on. And so uh, when you ask Dr. Wadi, why do you keep telling people to go to their primary care physician if working poor people and working class people, and particularly undocumented people who do not qualify for insurance, do not have a primary care physician? And what you'll say is, well, we really want everyone to get a primary care physician. I understand that ideal. Yes, there's a lot of evidence that shows that if you have a primary care physician, you have a relationship with the doctor, you're going to have better health outcomes. But we are in an emergency. We are in a pandemic and the government has a responsibility to respond. We have a responsibility to set up those systems of care. So I, I think, again, it's this 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 neoliberal ideology that has infected our politicians, that has infected our bureaucrats. Of course, it's also very corrupt. Right. Because there's a lot of money to be made in the private sector. If you push people into the private sector, if you give government contracts to the private sector and then in turn, guess what? There's a lot of big campaign contributions to be made right, by the politicians that are selling off government as well. So, I, again, I, I think that um, it's this neoliberal ideology that has really hampered our city's belief. And what's shocking is that other major American cities right, that have 
neoliberal mayors, they've been able to get this right. You know, New York City, I'm told that you can't walk two blocks. You can't walk four blocks without coming across a city run professional safe testing site. Right. Again, L.A. USD, L.A. Unified School District, same exact thing. They're setting up 65 mass testing sites so that their students, so that their families, so that their parents can get tested and get a real good, solid PCR test that they can trust before, uh, you know, they have to go back into the classroom uh, next week. So so that that's really my analysis of the current situation. It, it's been extremely difficult uh, to, to deal with this. Um, and, and it's just constant pushing, constant, constant pushing here in Chicago. Remember when vaccines first started becoming available to the public, people were going to Cook County because Cook County President Tony Preckwinkle and the Board of Commissioners are not infected with the same neoliberal ideology. I mean, it's present because it's present all across the United States. Right. Let me walk that back a little bit. But but it's not as present as it is in the city of Chicago. So the county had these wonderful mass vaccination sites all across the county. And meanwhile, our Chicago Department of Public Health, uh, you know, commissioner was still telling people, if you want to get vaccinated, go to your primary care physician. It's like, no, we got to get these vaccines out the door. We got to get people vaccinated as quickly as possible. So, again, that, that's really what's driving here. I feel like I'm, I'm repeating myself and beating a dead horse. All right, so. let's uh, I'm looking at the clock because I know you have a next uh, another appointment you got to get to. Uh, I want to talk move away from Chicago for a moment uh, and talk about sort of this as a general fight that's going on. Uh, again, it's like a Twitter fight, so I don't know how serious to take it, uh, <laughs> Carlos. I, I, I think Twitter is like a cesspool. But I, I notice um, positions that people are taking and the anger that they have. And, uh, oh, my God, I've seen so many uh, liberals uh, saying things, tweeting things like um, that uh, Miles Conflassen has joined us. Miles Conflassen What's has up, Miles? Uh, I've seen so many uh, uh, liberals uh, saying things like Joe Biden should do like um, Ronald Reagan. This is again before you were even born, Carlos. But uh, Ronald Reagan fired the air traffic controllers in 1981, uh, and it was considered a great triumph for the anti-union movement. Basically, and I, I think you could argue it really set back the union movement for at least 20 years, if not longer. Uh, so now I've seen liberals saying, fire the teachers. I'm like, just going to fire the teachers? I mean, I'm like, what is that? Nate Silver, I sent this one to you, Nate Silver, um, who's pretty good at setting up algorithms to figure out what the polls mean, is suddenly weighing in. Uh, he's a p- opinion, uh, opined that uh, closing schools is as bad as the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Uh uh, Miles Conflanson sent me the one about the call Hannah Jones from 1619 who's weighing in uh, talking about how destructive closing schools is and I, I, I can't even get the words out Carlos because where are these people when we need them in the fight to fairly and adequately fund Chicago's public schools a fight that I've like been writing about for 30 freaking years all of a sudden when it's the teachers who have demanded that there be these safe protocols set up. They're the enemies. They're like George Bush invading Iraq. So please, Carlos, help me understand this, the ideological underpinnings of this fight. Go ahead. You know, it's a lot of hypocrisy um, because if Trump were president, uh, I don't think that these liberal pundits, you know, that these liberal elites would be saying the types of things that they're saying right now. 
Um, you know, a lot of I'm a socialist, I'm a leftist, right? There's a there's a long held analysis that is very much backed by the historical record and a lot of data that shows that, you know, we have two capitalist parties, right? We have two parties that serve the capitalist class. And I think that, you know, um, the bosses, right, the ultra wealthy, the elites, they're saying everyone has to go on with the show, right? Everyone has to get back into the workplace, go die for American capitalism, right? Don't worry about the impact and the risks to your health. Um, and, and I think that, you know, now that Democrats are in control, they're carrying the water, right, for big business, for that business agenda. Um, and, and I think that it's also just really frustrating because we should always stand with workers. If you're a progressive, if you're a leftist, right, if you're someone who believes in social and economic justice, whatever the label is that you ascribe to yourself, you should always stand with workers, when they're demanding safe working conditions, particularly when they're re- demanding reasonable things to save lives, not just for themselves, but for the people that they serve. This is just so basic. It's not rocket science, right? If workers are fighting for safe working conditions, you stand with them, right? In Chicago, we have Milagro Tortillas, the most delicious tortillas in the history of, of humankind. Um, and um, the workers there were dying of COVID. They were contracting COVID in the workplace and they were dying and they were dealing with a boss who was a total jerk, a total asshole, if I could swear on your program. And guess what? They got together and they started to organize and they started to fight. Right. And they've been demanding safe working conditions. Right. And a lot of good leftists, a lot of good progressives stood with them because that's what you do. Right. It was the American labor movement and it was American progressives who ended child labor who brought about things like OSHA, right? Agencies to protect the safety of workers when they're on the job, right? That is the tradition of American progressivism. That is a tradition of the American labor movement. And that is exactly the same fight that these teachers and that the workers at the Milagro Tortilla Factory are engaging in today. And I got to say something else. If you want the schools to remain open, then it's incumbent upon the CPS leadership and it's incumbent upon Mayor Lightfoot to do the same exact thing that happened in the LA Unified School District, right? And put those basic reasonable policies into place, right? That's that's what you gotta do. And so instead we got this mayor who's completely lost the plot, you know, and is quoted in political saying all of this is happening because of people's egos. No, it's not, Lori. It's happening because teachers put forward reasonable demands that they wanted to see in place to ensure a safe return to instruction, and you ignored them. You ignored them, and you brought us to this point. You didn't even try to meet them halfway. You didn't even try and meet them a third of a way. You literally said, go back into the classroom. Everything is fine. And you just repeated that same talking point over and over and over again. So if, if I'm on the board of directors of a corporation, and I want my workers to stay in the workplace, and I got a manager right? Or I got a CEO of a company, right? Let's, let's go off of this theory that it's all personal, right? And the workers there dislike that manager so much that they're going on strike just based off of their dislike of that manager. That manager's got to go, right? So I think similarly, right? If we're going to go off of this theory, because I've seen this in political, I've seen this in some other places. And I want to address this before I got to go, because it's just so ridiculous and idiotic. This narrative that the conflict at CPS is based off of this personal conflict between tens of thousands of teachers, right? And the mayor, I mean, it's so ludicrous. So tens of thousands of people are deciding to forego pay, 
because of their personal angst and, and hatred towards Mayor Lori Lightfoot. I mean, come on. Really? That's insane. But if that is the case, then Lori Lightfoot's got to go. <laughs> well, <laughs> if we want to keep the teachers in the workplace and they hate this woman so much, then I'm sorry, she's got to go. But this is the reality. It's, it's, it's going back to that point that I told you earlier, which is that, you know, Lori is not serving the people of the city of Chicago. Right. She's serving the, the business class. She's serving the ultra wealthy. And I'm pretty sure they're calling her up right now and saying, yeah, stick it to those teachers. Right. Bust that union. This is making them look so bad. So as a matter of fact, there are elite people in the city of Chicago that are antagonizing and precipitating this fight, because I don't think if it weren't for them in Lori's ear telling them, yeah, you're doing the right thing. Fight them. Don't give them an inch. If you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. Then my workers will want a mile, too. Right. I think if it weren't for them antagonizing Lori. I think Lori, I would hope, would be more reasonable, right? I would hope that Pedro Martinez, the CEO of CPS, would be more reasonable and would do what other major school districts across the nation have done and meet the reasonable demands and requests that their teachers are making. This is not rocket science, right? right. But unfortunately, I mean, people have totally lost their plot. Nate, Nate Silver has lost the plot. I mean, that's just so offensive to, to compare the invasion of Iraq where people's homes were destroyed, their livelihoods were destroyed, they lost their lives, they were tortured by American soldiers? Come on, you're going to compare that to people remote learning? It's just, it's it's deeply offensive. And then again, I, I just, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to come on here because I've been really angry on, on Twitter. You saw those tweets. I have been on fire because this is just, it's nonsense, Ben. Well, I, uh, I, I got my eye on the clock uh, to, to let you go because I promised I would let you go at one thirty. and Miles is sitting here, but I got to give a shout out to Miles. Uh, I don't look at Twitter. It was Miles that said, you know, you got to look at Carlos's feed. I just got to <laughs> give the man credit. He was the one who told me and I looked at it uh, and invited you on. And there's so much more I could um, throw at you, Carlos, but I understand you got to go and it's after one thirty, and you were a good sport to come on as it was. But uh, right, yeah. bye, you all. Uh, keep See you, Carlos. the fight. Talk to you soon. Carlos Ramirez Rosa, Alderman of the 35th Ward, and Miles Conflason joining us from these times. Uh, and uh, Miles, we were going to, I'm not going to, uh, we, we we joked, by the way, before uh, uh, Carlos started talking that it's uh, Whitney Young Day and the Ben Jarowski Show because you <laughs> and Carlos are graduates of Whitney Young. And um, so before I move on to January 6th, which is uh, on my mind, a very interesting article uh, that uh, you sent me from uh, In These Times. Uh, God, I could talk about that one for another hour or two about uh, uh, the way the uh, January 6th insurrection is being used by the right and the left. Uh, but before we get into that, let's just continue the conversation here a little bit about the reaction that um, liberals are having. And I, I you know, it, I, I divide it into two camps. Uh, Miles, I, it's uh, liberal parents in Chicago uh, who are really upset, and I can understand their, ups, their upset and frustration that the schools are closed and their kids are at home. I could absolutely, totally understand that uh, frustration. And then the more, you know, I don't know what to call them, the political class of liberal thinkers and pundits, et cetera, who don't live in Chicago, don't have kids in the Chicago public schools, uh, but see this as symbolic of a larger fight and feel that teacher unions have gone too far uh, in general and have too much control. Uh, and this goes back to, uh, oh my God, the movie uh, Waiting for Superman, which uh, 
presented charter schools as a solution and the answer uh, to eradicate the differences in learning between uh, wealthy kids and poor kids. And if you could just only get rid of teachers unions and if you could only get rid of bad teachers and if you just had the power to fire teachers, all would be well uh, in America. That was the theme. And so many Dems bought into that in the early part about 10 years ago. And I, it seems like it hasn't completely died, that notion, you know, that teachers, uh, collective organizations of teachers, the unions of teachers are at fault uh, with the American educational system, as opposed to the gross inequities that exist that are right in front of us all the time. Uh, anyway, I think this is at play. What's your thoughts about this? What often gets lost, I think, in a lot of these conversations and debates is the fact that it's not just teachers looking out for themselves. There's a whole uh, there's 30 kids in a lot of these classes, more than that. And some of them. And then when you have teachers that are out because they have contracted COVID or they've been exposed and they need to quarantine, that increases the class sizes even more because then these uh, different classes get uh, put together. And so you're jamming, you know, uh, dozens of kids in the same room. That's uh, and we know that most of these schools haven't been outfitted with new ventilation systems or the type of um mitigation measures which would help to um stop the spread of covid uh that meets that makes it a breeding ground for um viral spread and we're seeing that in terms of how many kids are contracting this virus and the incredible rise in hospitalization so this focus on just teachers as if they're only looking out for their own health um is so absurd when you look at this as you know this is a public health crisis that uh, it doesn't, it, it's not an individual based issue. It's about the community and it's about, you know, you, you can't only look at it from one person's perspective. If one person's going into the classroom and they, you know, are positive and they don't know it because we don't have the type of testing regime in place that would allow us to, um, to, to find that out on a regular basis, you're putting uh, students at risk. And then they're bringing it home to their own families. We're in the midst of this massive Omicron uh, wave. And look at what the private schools are doing. They're, they're going remote. You know, look at how the pundit class is operating. They're not going into the studios. You see all these people talking on air about how we need to get the teachers in the classroom when they're, you know, dialing in on Zoom from their uh, bedrooms. <laughs> it's just absurd. It's, it, it is hypocrisy, yeah. like Carlos said. And you're right, there is this legacy of like Michelle Ree and Eva Moskowitz and these, you know, pro charter, anti union um, figureheads that were considered like thought leaders at the time that has cast a long shadow over how tr traditional mainstream, mainstream liberals think about this issue. And you see it even, you know, we talked about some Nate Silver and Nicole Hannah Jones, David Axelrod, another, you know, Chicago based pundit was on line talking about how the union needs to get in line and get over themselves and everything when, you know, he's, he's teaching at uh, University of Chicago that's remote right now. To, you know, it's like this is just kind of absurd how we're just seeing these, this double standard um, being put into play. And one more thing, I mean, in terms of specifically the situation at CPS, like 
what they're asking, what teachers are asking for is just to go back to the basic standard that the CPS agreed to in the original return to the classroom about the um, levels of when they had that safety agreement was basically that um, the, the operations in the schools would pause for two weeks um, if the citywide positivity rate increased for seven consecutive days for a rate of at least 15 percent higher than the previous week. Um, and that's basically what they put, the, the teachers have said, that they're going to be out until the 18th because they want to have that basic thing, that basic measure still in place. And if that was held uh, held to by the uh, district, which, you know, CPS had previously agreed to, all the cities in the school would be um, would be closed down right now. So it's not as if that this is some radical demand that these teachers are making. And Carlos is right, uh, was right to cite the situation in L.A. I would just add New York has done the same thing. They have these um, very comprehensive uh, testing uh, mechanisms in place and mitigation efforts. I'm not saying it's perfect in those districts either, but it's certainly making they're making more of an effort than CPS is doing. I mean, what they're what the leadership is basically saying in the school district is just go back in. You know, we're not going to do anything else. And what the uh, union has has said, we talked about this before, is they've pointed out that the the school CPS specifically got over two billion dollars in. COVID relief earmarked through the um, American Rescue Plan, um, COVID, Biden's COVID relief yeah. plan. They got this money, and the CTU is just asking, why is that money not going into, uh, you know, buying N95 masks for students and teachers, for um, getting regular testing in place, for doing these basic measures? And when a journalist asked about that at a recent press conference, was it yesterday or the day before, the mayor just wrote it off and didn't didn't answer the question at all and just, you know, made a um, attack on the journalist saying that they don't a- attend enough of her press conferences to ask such a question. It's just, you know, it's like Marie Antoinette stuff. It's 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 kind of absurd. So I would just say this is, you know, I, I understand why parents are upset about this situation. It's it's you know, nobody wants to be in a situation where you're finding out the night before your, your kid's not going to be able to go into a school place the next day. There should be more of a, a plan laid out. But this is how these fights always go. You know, the administration, Mayor, Mayor Lightfoot's administration and CPS in general, don't budge until they're put into a position where they have to. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and that's uh, and we're just seeing that play out again here. Absolutely. And and uh, I mean, I've been watching this stuff for a long time in this city. Uh, and the attitude of the Chicago uh, public schools hierarchy, central office, as we used to call it, uh, toward teachers, has not wavered. Uh, Miles, this goes back before you were at Whitney Young, before you were in grammar school. It's like, <laughs> you're not our partners. You're our subordinates. You are our employees. You will do what we tell you. It's a very militaristic. It's like the post office. I don't know if you are worked at the post office, but it's like top down. We are delivering this ultimatum to you. You're going to follow what we tell you. If you don't follow what we tell you, you'll be punished. And I look at this. I'm like, they've been sitting at the. I just laugh at this. They go, they, they put these teachers union uh, reps or officials into a room where I don't know where they are for their negotiations. I guess it's zoom now. And they consider this progress. Like just talk over and over again and again about the same old things. <laughs> and then you're right. It's like the teachers union. Now they, I do believe I'm critical of them that they could have done a better job of, um, 
getting their message out ultimately because people like the decision, like you said, late at night threw a lot of people off. But that said, I mean, how many days of negotiations are you going to have? We, you're intransigent. You don't. I mean, it's the things that you could do are so easily. You don't even need negotiations. You get what I'm saying, Miles? So yeah, I hear what you just. Well, and one one last point on that is just the if you listen to the language that the mayor used, she called testing a quasi medical procedure and. Um, use that as a basis for why they're not instituting it, which really is troubling. And I don't think that's getting enough attention because you look at these other districts, they're all implementing testing. Workplaces are implementing testing. Even whole countries are implementing testing. You know, it's not as if this is, you know, some radical thing in terms of how we're dealing with COVID. And yet the mayor's approaching it as if there's some kind of moral question at play that, you know, we're invading people's privacy by making them test. It's almost like a Kyrie Irving kind of thing, you know, (laughs) just being so like dismissive of the basic science that public health officials have agreed to around this stuff. It's, it's really troubling. I got to defend Kyrie Irving. Uh, I've never heard Kyrie Irving, a great uh, point guard, return for the Brooklyn Nets, uh, one of the great uh, ball handlers in the history of basketball, but uh, does not want to be vaccinated. And yet I've never heard Kyrie. I've heard Kyrie Irving saying some pretty baffling things. At one point he said that the uh, earth was actually flat. He had a good uh, source for that. Uh, But I've never heard Kyrie Irving say uh, anything against testing. You know, so I think that Mayor Lori Lightfoot's gone beyond Kyrie Irving. Next thing you know, she'll be going, you know, uh, I read somewhere that the earth could be flat. I'm just, no, she's heading into MAGA country and she's being supported by MAGA uh, on this issue. And so this is a classic of what Dennis always calls a mixed message. And this is what's one of the most frustrating things in general dealing with COVID, uh, but in particular with, with Lori Lightfoot. You know, it's like now... (laughs) <laughs> all of a sudden, I don't know if we could test, make kids test because the parents have to be involved. So she's picking up some of the rhetoric of like the anti-critical race theory crowd. I, I don't know where she's going with this. Darren Bailey has now like endorsed her position like because apparently the Chicago Teachers Union is just more wacky lefty than a Lori Lightfoot. And he's using it to bash uh, Governor Pritzker in the hopes that he could draw Governor Pritzker into this fray. Uh, so, but yeah, I, um, it's, it's just the mixed message involved here. Like, is this not a serious crisis? If you get what I'm saying? And I think that so many people get your thoughts about this, have come to the conclusion that this, at this particular moment, if you're vaccinated and if you had the booster that you will getting COVID is not so bad. It's like getting a cold or maybe even a severe flu or, you know, like a flu, not even severe flu. And so you can live with it. I see that comment out there a lot uh, by parents in response to keeping, uh, to closing the schools. So it's, and I, I heard it from the health commissioner, you know what I'm saying? Which is not exactly the message you want your health commissioners putting out because as you know, Miles, the more people that get the disease, the more people who are not immunized, uh, have the potential to get it. They could be uh, ha- have to go to the hospitals, which they are. So if you're the health commissioner, you should be worried about your hospital beds filling up. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I-, I feel as though for political reasons of uh, the city of Chicago's leadership, the mayor of the city of Chicago and her health commissioner are moving toward MAGA country. Am I wrong in that? 
it certainly is a more dismissive stance towards the severity of this pandemic than they um, expressed for the past two years. I think we've, you know, this is the mayor who was all stay home, stay, save lives and had the, you know, cardboard cutouts of her all over the city, you know, looking angry at people shutting and she's shutting down the lakefront and everything. Um, another mixed message and absurd response to the pandemic is to close outdoor spaces in the summer during a pandemic. But, um, we could forgive maybe because the, the, all the, the, um, science wasn't in at, at that point. But right now, I mean, it flies in the face of everything we've heard in terms of what we need to do to mitigate the spread of this, to say we can reopen indoor, um, spaces without, uh, proper mitigation uh, efforts in place, especially when we're seeing the spikes. I mean, look at any of these graphs. It's just like going crazy, you know, and that includes hospitalizations now. I mean, I am hopeful that Omicron will be a more, um, a less severe strain ultimately. And that once this uh, wave subsides, then there will be a lot more natural immunity within the population and that we won't have, you know, as uh, deep of an impact. But we don't know that. I mean, we couldn't, we didn't foresee Omicron showing. We didn't foresee Delta. It's hard to, you know, um, future cast what will happen in this pandemic. And to go to, to, you know, just reflexively go on the more aggressive side of things and say, we need to, you know, just get the economy back running and throw people back into indoor environments um, when we're in the midst of this spread just seems the opposite of what this administration has been doing and, you know, talking about for so long and certainly is a more dangerous approach than what you would expect from a public health commission. You know, that's, that's, especially when you we're hearing even from the national, uh, from Dr. Fauci and the CDC that we need to be doing everything possible to mitigate the spread during this wave. A lot of classes, you know, a lot of classrooms around the country have just taken the, these two weeks remote, right? Like that's not something that is unusual right now. This is what is, you, a lot of businesses are doing that too, um, because they realize that we need, right now, hospitals are being overwhelmed. We just heard in Illinois, um, we've got like 80% of uh, beds filled or something. That's dangerous, especially when, and they're, can, you know, Pritzker's having the hospitals cancer, cancel surgeries because so many hospital beds are full. At this point, I think that, you know, doing everything possible to limit the spread um, to get through this um, this current wave, which a lot of people say will crest or, you know, peak within the next few weeks. Yeah. That's, um, that's just sound advice. And the fact that that's being resisted so adamantly by the city um, political leadership is confounding to me. Um, and I think that it, they'll, they'll probably come to regret it. Yeah. Uh, by the way, the, uh, uh, the standards to get into the United Center are tougher than the standards to get into it. That's what I keep going on and on because uh, as a Bulls fan, this is the closest thing I have to what a teacher or a kid faces going into a classroom is whether I go to a Bulls game. Uh, and you have, at least when you go to the Bulls game, you have to show that you have a vaccination card or that you've been uh, vaccinated. So it's, it's, it's so twisted and weird. Like the standards are higher to go to a Bulls game than to go to school. Uh, which is a point that uh, the health commissioner made. She goes, well, she said that um, we're not closing down bars. 
why should then we close down schools? I'm like, what is the logic here? Are you saying we should close down bars? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, very, very strange times, uh, Miles. And they do, and they have, you know, implemented a vaccine requirement now in bars. So, you know, that's the same yes. logic applies, right? Yes. I mean, it's still it's still more restrictive to get into restaurants and bars than it is to get into the schools. Yes, that is correct. Uh, and um, all right, uh, let's move on from this because I could talk about this forever. And I thank you for sending me those tweets. If it wasn't for you and Romana and other my, uh, my other friends in the Twitter world, I don't know if I would ever see Twitter. Uh, and uh, it's just an insane conversation, in my humble opinion, uh, the anger that liberals have toward the Chicago teachers union uh, will, will, or just teachers unions in general, but in particular, they cannot stand the Chicago teachers. Union. I don't think David Axelrod will ever forgive the Chicago teachers union for blooding up his beloved Rahm Emanuel. Uh, he's going to hold that grudge uh, forever. All right, let's move on to January 6th uh, and talk about um, uh, an article that just ran in, in these times, which you were kind enough to send to me before, about an hour or so ago. And uh, I read and a fascinating story in many levels. I hadn't thought about this, the twist. I can give you a reporter a lot of credit. Uh, you edited the story. You didn't write it. Um, our old friend Bronco wrote it. And just a fascinating twist how the January 6th insurrection, uh, the riot of MAGA supporters, uh, is being used by Republican governors uh, in uh, in states throughout the country to uh, pass laws that would be more restrictive on protesters, particularly left left wing protest. So MAGA lost its freaking mind, invaded the Capitol, threatened the livelihoods of congressmen and the vice president and senators, etc. And now they're using that to justify imposing laws uh, in the throughout the country that would hammer hard at lefties. I'm telling you, Miles, MAGA doesn't miss a trick. They are some slick operators. Uh, and in the essay, uh, I could, again, Bronco, I'll give you credit. I should bring him on sometime and have him talk about it. But he's got uh, two links to Tom Cotton. I don't know if you saw it. Well, you wrote, you edited it, so of course you saw this. What am I saying? But I don't know. I actually read the links, like the links that he put. Tom Cotton, the, you, uh, the Republican senator from uh, uh, Arkansas, Arkansas, MAGA to the core, wrote this essay which I hadn't, I missed. It was in the Wall Street Journal. He wrote it right after January 6th of 2021. Whoa, whatever that was. And uh, in that essay, he he uh, criticized Donald Trump, but didn't name him. I don't know if you saw this. I don't know if you actually read the essay. Uh, he goes, the president heedlessly goaded uh, the crowds on the mall while some Republicans have spent a week encouraging false hopes of that Congress could overturn the results of the election. That's a direct quote from Tom Cotton's essay. The president, who he doesn't name, okay? Uh, and then, but subsequently to that, Tom Cotton, I just got to point out, has become like the biggest defender of Donald Trump uh, when it comes to investigating what the president did to incite the rioters. Uh, and so just uses it as a pivot point uh, Miles to hammer away at lefties, Black Lives Matter, uh, and anybody of the leftist persuasion who takes to the streets. So there's a political game going on here. Why don't you go explicate it a little more? 
Well, what Tom Cotton specifically did is he got, you know, uh, hammered for writing this op-ed initially that um, after the George Floyd protests saying that we, you know, Trump should send in the troops, right? People probably remember this. He was making a case for U.S. Army basically to go in and uh, squash his protests and understandably there was outrage and you know i think that they ended up taking down the op-ed there was just there was, there was a lot of back and forth the editor i think got um got taken off the assignment no, they didn't take down that essay you talk about the tom cotton in the new york times yeah. essay as opposed yeah. to the one i just cited in the wall street journal yeah. uh no the the editor got either got fired or forced out i can't remember what which but that essay you could still read it uh yeah oh go ahead yeah. So, so yeah. So there was pushback anyway, and 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 uh, understandably so because that's an absurd proposition to you know send in the military to um, you know quell peaceful protests. Uh, that said, at, right after January sixth, he uh, published another op-ed and it basically said the same thing. He said, "Now you believe me, right? That we should send in the military." And honestly, that's just a representative of this larger trend in terms of the the response to what happened on January 6th. Um, I think obviously this was a very dark day in American history. The um, And we are, you know, on the one year anniversary today, it was a clear um, attempt to overturn a democratic election. It was stoked by, um, you know, up to the top of the um, seat of American power, you know, from the president on down the um, Republican party and its corporate apparatchiks and, you know, uh, leadership got in line to make sure that everything would be done to help uh, make sure Donald Trump remained president despite losing to Joe Biden. That's a, a massive threat, you know, to our democratic system and certainly would have uh, set the country down an even darker path. Um, that said, the people that were involved in that uh, event, in the riot at the Capitol, were by and large people that were followers of Donald Trump that believed that he had had, as he told them, had had the election stolen from them. And, you know, I'm not inclined to just uh, immediately defend anybody for believing something, but I've got to say, it's almost like an epistemological thing. Like, you know, we believe the things were told and taught. We don't have, we know we're not counting up the votes. We don't actually know, you know, that Joe Biden lived. We, we believe in, you know, the institutions that give us our, our information and we trust in them, right? And me and you, Ben, we have specific institutions we trust and, you know, media sources and everything. Well, a lot of these people, the institutions and the media sources they trusted all told them that an election was being stolen from them, that, you know, that, it, that, that there actually was an un- anti-democratic coup going on being led by Joe Biden. And they were following, you know, what those institutions, including their president, was telling them to, you know, go and defend democracy and and storm the Capitol. Um, that and in because of that, now the people, the only response we've had to the uh, riot has been a crackdown on many of the people that participated in it. I think that's understandable. Laws were broken. You know, people should be held accountable for that. But there has been no uh, work done on a federal level 
to actually change the structures that led to that happening in the first place, which is, you know, a corporate dominated right wing media ecosystem and echo chamber that helped to provide, you know, backing for all of these unfounded claims and helped to amplify uh, all this disinformation. Um, nor has there been any efforts done by the Democratic Party to uh, safeguard democracy. You know, I mean, I, I, you could say that it's all just because the filibuster and Joe Manchin and cinema and what have you. But look, we're a year out from this thing. We have a party that has full control of the federal government in terms of the House, the Senate, and uh, the presidency, and yet they can't pass any democratic reforms to um, to safeguard the institutions that would make sure that things like January 6th don't happen in the future. Instead, what we've gotten is just uh, more and more uh, cases against the individuals involved in it on a um, granular level, you know, to go after the specific people that stormed the Capitol. None of the people that encouraged them to do so or that maybe even like led them on tours to of the capital to to you know get inside information on it people like potentially gosar marjorie taylor green or trump himself no accountability for the leadership it's only been specific targeting of these people that understandably were following what they were being told by their president and then you know to moving from a granular level uh, uh what we've actually had legislatively is as you just pointed out what's written in this article is a spate of of anti-protest laws across the country that are intended to criminalize dissent and specifically to target the left. And that's already how they're being used. I mean, the most uh, clear example of that is what's happened in Florida, where after the George Floyd protests, Governor DeSantis, a hard right you know, Trump is figure, he tried to pass this sweeping anti-protest law that, among other things, would allow motorists to mow down protesters, you know, as we... Um, uh, have, have seen as has happened in our recent history, you know, left-wing protesters getting attacked by vehicles um, that, you know, there was resistance to it because by the left and by liberals, because uh, they thought this is outrageous, you know, that you're going to pass the sweeping anti-protest law in response to the uh, racial justice protests. Uh, then, after January 6th, within days of January 6th, that uh, event, the Capitol riot, was invoked by DeSantis to push through that same law, and he ended up getting it passed and enacted. And even and since then, it has been used to um, to target left-wing activists. That's also happened in uh, other states across the country. There's been 88 laws that have been introduced around the country since January 6th to um, tamp down on protests, and 11 of them have already been enacted and they're having their intended effect of um you know throwing kind of ch uh, chilling the political atmosphere so that you know people are uh, scared to be to organize in concert with one another in fear of government-led repression and as we've seen throughout our history those when there's these kind of anti-protest laws passed they ended up disproportionately impacting those on the political left and that especially is people fighting for around racial justice issues but really across the board and even um on uh, you know, when it comes to the Biden administration, they've put out a whole sweeping um, domestic anti-terror policy uh, that specifically a lot that says, you know, we need to um, 
stamp out radicalism across the ideological spectrum and specifically calls out environmentalists and anti-capitalists as potential threats that need to be um, targeted as well. So, I mean, this is not, it's, it's not like, this isn't getting covered very much. And that's why I think it's a, a critical um, element to, for us to focus on on this day, because understandably everybody's focusing on the actual events of January 6th. But I think the legacy of it uh, has is being seen m- most clearly in how these laws are being used and how they're uh, how they're being um, uh, used to specifically target left wing activists, and that should that should you know be of concern to anybody that believes in freedom of speech and you know the right to um, express your dissent in a, in a free democracy. So yeah, I think that that's the uh, one part of this. January 6th conversation that isn't getting quite enough attention, but should get more. I'm with you. Uh, and, and I say this, uh, I'm not hiding this. Uh, it's not, I mean, this is something I'm revealing for the first time. Uh, I'm not revealing this for the first time. I, um, I'm really scared about the forces at play in January 6th. Uh, and to your point, not just the individual people, uh, who were quote unquote on the front lines following Trump's command uh, to go try to uh, t- take over the Capitol and force um, Pence, Mike Pence, to declare Donald Trump the, the winner. I'm, uh, I'm of a, the winner of an election he did not win. Yes, I believe that uh, <laughs> Joe Biden got more votes than Donald Trump. Even with this cockamamie electoral college system we have, which is completely undemocratic, Miles, I still think Biden won the election. But what's so troubling to me is how quickly the Republican Party uh, has embraced pretty much every argument Trump was making and has overlooked uh, every crime that Trump committed. And they're on the precipice of nominating him as their leader again. It's pretty obvious that he's going to run, and if he does run, he will win. It's to the point, Miles, I just wrote about this in the reader, where no Republican in the state of Illinois uh, will dare to defy Trump uh, in, a pri- in a primary race. So you got Mary Miller running against uh, Rodney Davis, who's quote-unquote the moderate, and Rodney Davis is trying to do a, do a jiu-jitsu move and present Mary Miller, who has Trump's endorsement, as the anti-Trumper. That's how scared Republicans are of Donald Trump. And I just think, Miles, that um, it's a really dangerous time uh, in our country, because I think that ultimately, if Donald Trump were to prevail and have imposed the kind of government he wants, it's like you guys like you and I would be the first to go, you know, and, and our good friend Carlos, who was just on the, on the show a little while ago. It's a scary time. And I'll just take one example and get your thoughts on this. Uh, Donald Trump is being unpunished. Just imagine if Michael Madigan had gotten on the phone with election officials in throughout in counties throughout the state of Illinois and asked them to find the votes they needed to overturn an election in which 
the Republicans have been victorious. So that a Democrat would win. Just imagine what the Tribune would be saying, what Darren Bailey would be saying, what Ken Griffin would be saying, what Rodney Davis would be saying. Just imagine what, what, what your old friend John Cass would be saying. I mean, I, the Bruce Rauner would be saying. Do you know what I'm, I mean? It's just such a clear and gross violation of just all standards. He did it. He got away with it. And he's more he's more powerful than ever. That's a frightening specter for me uh, as I look f- to the possibility that the Republicans could take over the House by the end of the year. Go ahead. Your response. Well, and I think that's what makes the uh, situation with these anti-protest laws so dire because they're being passed now, you know, within state houses. But if we did have a new um, domestic terror statute, which is what um, Trump initially wanted to use back in uh, May of uh, 2020, when he wanted to declare Antifa, you know, the anti-fascist movement, a terrorist organization, he wasn't able to because there was no domestic terror statute on the books. Well, since January 6th, all these Democrats have been clamoring, including Adam Schiff, most uh, you know notably, to institute just such a law. And if that law is on the books in the future and Donald Trump does become president, which is a possibility, of course, if you hand new powers over to another future demagogue, that's going to be um, a horrendous situation for those on the on the political left. And, you know, also just look at what has has happened. I mean, I think that if there was obviously if this was a left wing protest at the Capitol on January 6th, if that had been, you know, full of people of color, let alone, you know, racial justice protesters, it would be a completely different response. We don't even have to, you know, try to, (laughs) you know, kind of put in a hypothetical of what would have happened. But um, that's clearly I think they wouldn't have even let them get to the point of gathering on the, uh, you know, at the, at, at the ellipse, let alone get to the Capitol. But, um, you know, there have been left-wing protests at capitals before. Remember, you know, Wisconsin in 2010, there was, you know, protesters went into the Capitol and were trying to, you know, stop an anti-union law from being put into, they weren't trying to hang, you know, a vice president or, you know, some of the other more dramatic calls from the crowd on January 6th. But in terms of the actual act of, you know, uh, going on to government property and everything. That was a tactic that was used by the left. I think, uh, you know, it didn't stop that law from happening, but it was still a, you know, a, a, a widely regarded protest. Um, if we start to criminalize all these different elements and just, and, you know, put on the, you know, throw the book at anybody that engages in them, that can really come back to um, bite the very people on the, you know, liberal left side, once there's different administrations and power. And I'm all, you know, as a general, like civil liberties advocate, I want to see there be less carceral solutions to um, some of these problems and focus more on the more systemic ones that led us to this, this uh, point in the first place, which again has to do with, you know, these questions of how we're structuring our democracy and how we allow our citizenry to engage with the democratic um, processes that are available. And right now they're being largely shut out and just spoken to through these um, corporate media outlets that clearly have their own political um, agendas at play. And that's, that's the real danger. I think. Uh, I agree. And uh, I'll also say this, uh, there's a very, a very much a false equivalency going on. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this. 
So um, constantly the right uh, from the get-go would uh, draw a, an analogy between the insurrection of January 6th, the MAGA people who overtook the Capitol with rioters throughout the summer of 2020. Uh, and eventually they just stopped even talking about the January 6th uh, congressional uh, insurrectionists and just talked about the rioters. And so the reason stated for the Republicans not joining a voting to have a congressional investigation uh, into what went down on January 6th and the role that Trump played in it was because the Democrats wouldn't include an investigation into the riots of 2020. Now, I had a different take on it. I'm like, I'm all for transparency, public hearings. So I would love to know. I wouldn't. I welcome an investigation into what that went down in the 2020. I would love it in the city of Chicago to present what was its strategy, its policing strategy in the midst of that unrest. If you recall, we play the tape all the time. Uh, Dennis plays it all the time where Raylo and, uh, and Lori go at it. Well, that was, uh, that was a recording of a meeting in violation of the Open Meetings Act, I want to say, uh, between the aldermen of the city uh, and of the city council and Mayor Lori Lightfoot talking about how the police responded to the unrest, the rioting, the looting uh, that followed the killing of George Floyd. And um, so I would welcome that. But my, Miles, on the, on the national level, all Republicans can do is talk about the looting of 2020, the burning of American cities in 2020, blue cities. They always talk about the Democratic-run cities uh, as a justification for doing nothing for January 6th. They draw out equivalency, which I don't think is the same, because I'll tell you this. I can't think of one instance. Maybe you can correct me here. Uh, Somebody who was arrested for rioting uh, in the summer of 2020 who was let go, moreover, who was defended by any elected official of the Democratic Party. I can't think of one person. <laughs> you got Republicans who are going to the mat to defend the insurrectionists, to defend Donald Trump, who made the call telling Georgia uh, election officials to cheat so he could be declared a winner. We got evidence of that. And Republicans defend that. Do you know of any Democrat editor anywhere who said, I defend this man's right to throw a brick through a window. And furthermore, uh, this is a overreach. So you get what I'm saying, Miles? It's like they just changed the subject is what they've done. And that's the basis. You're right for the laws that they're passing. The laws that they're passing not are not really a response to January 6th. The laws that they're passing are to play into that anger for the rioting of the summer of 2020, if you follow what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, and all we heard in the wake of the, um, we heard, you know, during these racial justice protests in the summer of 2020, there was a lot of, you know, symbolic gesturing by mainstream Democrats. You remember they were wearing the Kenty cloths and the, um, you know, down in Washington and everything. Um, but, in terms of the rhetoric, it was all, you know, we support the nonviolent protesters, but we, you know, very much um, chastise the, anybody engaging in any property destruction or, you know, violence. 
later on, of course, we find out, you know, like in Minnesota, there was, you know, there's one person dressed in black that was knocking out all these windows and everything and was cast as this Antifa radical and an example of how far the left has gone off the deep end in terms of, you know, becoming uh, just violent extremists. Of course, that person turned out to be uh, working for law enforcement in the first place, and, you know, just... Uh, clearly inciting this, uh, you know, property damage himself. That's, you know, example, you can be spread across the board in terms of how much the, it, 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 there was just uh, this very strange type of response that focused solely on trying to make sure that Democrats are on the right side of this question around racial justice because they don't want to alienate, you know, voters of color while also maintaining this sense of, um, you know, ethics and decorum and, you know, not uh, offending anybody. Um, that said, when it comes to the, um, the January 6th uh, uh, violence, all that we've seen in response to it has been people saying that we need to have more police. You know, we need to, we need to invest more in police. And that's become kind of the democratic response too. is we need to actually increase police budgets going against the basic demand that was at the heart of many of these protests back in the summer of 2020, which was we need to reallocate some of this funding going into law enforcement to social programs that would actually benefit um, the communities that the police are meant to serve in the first place. Now you see Democrats running as far away as possible from from that demand and in fact trying to align themselves much more with law enforcement and using the legacy of january 6th to um, back up that approach and i think that it just goes to show it's like you, you need to actually have people that stand with the communities that are calling for change not just symbolically trying to align themselves with them when it's politically convenient and too often i think that's what we um, have in our politics and it's really it's enough to like turn people off of oh, the yeah. political system itself and that's why I don't you know totally blame people for being uh, repulsed by the the both parties in our in our political system I, I, I hear you 100% and lost today uh, in, in all our conversation about uh, the showdown at the public schools is a great article very revealing article that was uh, ran in today's Sun-Times. Give a uh, shout-out to Tom Shuba, Tommy Two Joints. He's really killing it uh, on multiple fronts. Uh, but this was a story uh, about this uh, message that Lori, Mayor Lori Lightfoot delivered to police uh, commanders, a private uh, meeting with police commanders where she like, uh, was chastising them. Uh, and I don't know if you saw this article, uh, Miles. I urge everybody to read it. Uh, Tom Schubert just laid it out and the bizarre contradiction. So on one hand, uh, she was telling these uh, police commanders, your jobs are in the line. If there's not more arrests, we need more arrests. We got to show the people that we're really cracking down on crime. And then this is so twisted and weird. She goes, we also need more community engagement, positive community engagement. So there's metrics they've created for like, measuring community engagement it's like a, a night like and that could be like a conversation you have a friendly conversation you have with just an ordinary citizen on the street and i'm like wait a minute what <laughs> i mean it I, it's just like and, and in the article uh miles the some unknown police source tells tommy he goes well you know part of the reason arrests are down is because uh reefer's legal 
So we in the old days we could just arrest people for reefer, but now reefer's legal. And so like they're like ruining the day where they can't ar- build their arrest numbers by just blindly arresting people for having reefer a joint in their uh, pocket, telling them. You gotta be nice to people and hug a hug a person, and every time you do that, mark that off. Hugged a person in black community, and then arrest more. Miles, what I, I'm like, what is a cop to do? Do you follow what I'm saying? And you know, I feel for, I I actually do feel for police officers in the city of Chicago. You talk about mixed messages. Hug a person and then arrest them. Wait, hey, if you hug them while you're arresting them, do you credit, get credit for the arrest and the positive community reach out? I need to know this. So I, I hear you, Miles. It's like whatever point, and it was a very valid point that lefties were making in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder has totally been buried. You know what I'm saying? The notion that we're over-policing, the police have been too much responsibility has been put on the shoulders of police officers that they should be doing other things. That's completely been lost. I think in the last, what's it been now a year and a half. Well, and look at the, there's, you know, obvious solutions to it. Look at this treatment, not trauma proposal, you know, that um, Rosana Rodriguez has put forward here in, in Chicago that, you know, the mayor has been incredibly resistant to trying to, you know, do kind of her own very trimmed down version of it. But that gets to that same exact point you just made, Ben, which is that the police officers are being asked to basically perform the duties of social workers as well, or at least people able to deal with mental health crises versus just um, responding to crime. And that's not what police are trained to do, let alone what we as a society should expect of our um, law enforcement. And so when you have solutions like that on the table that are being disregarded and scrapped in order for, you know, our political leadership to posture to try to cast themselves in the most pro-police light as possible when the actual what they're doing is just reinforcing the status quo by simply throwing more money at problems versus trying to change you know the structures beneath them which would be which is what the promise of something like treatment not trauma would be which would be having you know social workers responding to um uh, emergency calls versus solely police officers. When you when you only uh, revert to that status quo uh, reinforcing position, you're never going to be able to deal with the problems at hand in any way that changes the that fundamental dynamic that is at play beneath it. And that's which is what we're seeing both in Chicago and nationally. I think. And I mean, I, I, yeah, I didn't expect to talk about policing today, but I do think that that's like that that is a fundamental issue that the Democratic Party itself is just so confused around because they spent 20, um, 20 running as this party that believes in racial justice. And I think it was largely the black vote that lifted Joe Biden into the presidency and certainly won uh, the two Senate seats in Georgia for um, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff that gave the Democrats their majority in the Senate. Um, and now, since then, we've just seen a running away from that and trying to embrace the complete uh, opposite, you know, and, and say we need to make, you know, stand with our 
our police and say that Republicans are the ones that are defunding the police. I mean, that's the message you're hearing a lot out of uh, a lot of Democrats is just trying to like do a role reversal <laughs> um, and say that they're the ones that play. And it's just like people can see through that, you know, like and especially when the stuff you actually said you're going to do in office, like, you know, and enshrine the right to vote for people at least protect it and provide you know basic social welfare programs you're not following through on it doesn't give people much hope that if you get another chance at you know holding power you're going to change anything that you said you were going to change in the first place so i think that yeah that the question of policing is a good microcosm of this bigger um conflict at play all right, um, Miles, let's uh, close uh, with, uh, as we always do when you're on the show, uh, promote some articles uh, in these times. We talked already about Broncos. Uh, I want to uh, give a shout out to Sarah Lazar. She was supposed to join us today. She was unable to do so. Uh, a great reporter, great writer for In These Times. She, uh, her story, which we've run out of time, uh, been waiting for dutifully for a couple of weeks to talk to her about, about Big Pharma. Uh, and the role that they they've been playing uh, in COVID, uh, the inability of, uh, to get control, uh, but we have to somehow or other like the the. <laughs> I so oh god, I really I about to hold back here because I really wish Sarah were here to talk about this, Miles. But the notion is that we can only deal uh, with this dangerous pandemic uh, if the drug companies are making money. They got to make their money. That's got the profit motive. They have to make their money. And so if we just directly pay, uh, you know, uh oh, here I go. I'm starting to sound like Aaron Rodgers, the Green Bay Packers. Uh, But Aaron had a good one point he made. Cannot stand Aaron Rodgers. Not for his political views so much, ladies and gentlemen, just because he's always beating my beloved Bears. But, um the, the one point he made was that, uh, and Joe Rogan makes this point as well, uh, that Big Pharma is making its money off of this pandemic. And uh, just the fact that we have to protect the um, the copyrights of, or not the copyrights, but the uh, uh, patents. Yeah. Patents, thank you. I couldn't think of a word at the moment. Uh, rights of big pharma on these drugs, even if people in Africa can't get access or India can't get, it's just mind blowing. So Sarah, great job. And we'll bring you on to discuss this, but any other uh, stories out there you want to highlight in, in these times? For sure. I think that that one specifically is about these 120 manufacturers around um, the world that would be able to produce mRNA vaccines um, if they were only given the technology to. And that is the fundamental issue at play. I mean, Joe Biden has gotten a lot of credit for saying he wants a TRIPS waiver at the WTO in order to provide this technology to other countries. But so far, the, the U.S. is not fighting for it. They're not embracing the proposal put forward by South Africa and India to actually share that technology. So, um, you know, once again, we're just seeing a lot of rhetoric with, with little follow through. And if we want to actually defeat this pandemic, we need to have vaccines globally available. We can't have the global South being like one percent immunized that's not ever going to actually stop there from being new variants so um yeah so that's a really critical um article we also jeff shirky um has a piece up this week i edited on the conflict at uh, between cps and ctu that's on the homepage right now so definitely check that out and um one other well i do want to talk just briefly about some of the labor uh actions that are going on around the country because right now we have um 
in Huntington, West Virginia, these steel workers are, we're going to be covering this. They're, they're, they're uh, on strike for almost a hundred days now. And it's a company owned by Warren Buffett, who's of course, one of the richest people in the world. He has over $109 billion in his own wealth. And yet they're still not, you know, they're, they're uh, nickel and diming their workers. And that's just part of the uh, labor uh, militancy that's been going on around the country. And I think one of the sort bright spots in um, our pol- our politics on the left right now is all of the worker militancy going on. So um, definitely check out In These Times for labor coverage. We have a lot of that going on. And then Hamilton Nolan, our uh, labor reporter, has a really great piece on uh, the potential uh, – the, what will likely happen when the crypto markets bottom out. You know, there's all this money that's fictitious capital that's in Bitcoin and all these other cryptocurrencies. And once those, once that bubble bursts, it's going to be a big reckoning. Um, and he has a great piece on what some of the political fallout of that might be. So um, definitely those are all on InTheseTimes.com. So check that stuff out. That last one is a good, I haven't read it yet. And uh, we should bring, maybe bring uh, Hamilton Nolan on to talk about that. That's one uh, topic I've not had a conversation with uh, uh ever and uh so that would educate me and by educating me we also educate our listeners uh good stuff as always miles thank you so much for taking the time to come on and uh sarah hope everything's well uh and you're always welcome back of course and uh want to thank uh, carlos ramirez rosa short notice coming on the show and um really telling it like it is from his heart about what's going on here in Chicago. Appreciate that very much, Carlos. Carlos, and I want to thank, of course, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy at Alton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And uh, as all Whitney Young graduates, Miles and Carlos Ramirez Rosa will tell you, uh, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D, and the D stands for Demarvelous. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. Take care, everybody. That's not correct. That's not correct.